What is happening, y'all? This is Connie Morgan with our final FBT podcast episode, episode 24 of our inaugural season. I am so happy with the support we've gotten from this free-thinking corner of the internet that we've built. It's been so fun to rock with y'all for this first season. Season two will kick off the first Wednesday of 2024, but we may or may not have some more bonus content coming your way before the new year. I rarely bug y'all with requests, but if you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a paid or even free subscriber to our Substack page. If you're listening to us on Podcast Attic, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or some other platform, you might be saying episode 24, where is episode 23? It jumps from 22 to 24. Well, my friends, episode 23 is behind the paywall. You can check out our Substack, freeblackthought.substack.com for the link, but it is a quick reaction from me on the Candace Owens Ben Shapira drama. The episode ended up being an hour long, so my reaction itself wasn't quick, but the time I took to come up with it was. It is a fun episode I'd love to get your feedback on, but you gotta pay up. One other thing I would appreciate is if you would drop a review on Apple Podcasts. I know I don't have to tell you how that would help us. Drop us a five-star review anywhere you can. Everything at FBT is done on a volunteer basis. So any help you can give us with a subscription or a review is greatly appreciated. Okay, so about our final guest of the year, Ashira Solomon. She's a political commentator and moderator located in Jerusalem. She tours and speaks all over the world doing everything from emceeing the recent 5th Annual Global Forum for Women Political Leaders in Iceland to giving speeches in Washington, D.C. Born and raised in California, Ashira holds a Bachelor of Science and has a Master of Public Administration from California State University, Chico. She is also the recipient of the Boron National Security Fellowship Award from the U.S. Department of State and the recipient of the Running Star Fellowship Award. In her spare time, Ashira enjoys immersing herself in Hebrew culture and helping to champion the next generation of business leaders in Israel. I am so happy to have her on. And let me tell you, this was the episode that didn't want to get recorded. First, we had a calendar mishap with time zones and savings time. Thing like Israel has a savings, like a daylight savings type of thing. And we have a daylight savings type of thing. And so our calendars got messed up. Then she had issues with her laptop. So we had to record on her phone. And then the whole episode didn't upload. So although I asked Ashira the speed round questions like I usually do, they are missing from the recording you're about to hear now. But we won't be stopped. The truth must go out and free thought will prevail. But if you notice, the episode sort of cuts out at the end. That is why. As a believer myself, I am almost certain that there were nefarious forces at work trying to prevent Ashira and I from connecting. Because you know what some people hate? That there is no such thing as the Black perspective. Just Black people with perspectives. Ashira, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Wow, how many times have I said podcast and I just messed that word up? The podcast. Thank you for joining me and we have a big topic today, a somewhat controversial topic, a topic that gets people all worked up. We're going to be talking about Israel, but first, before we get into the nitty gritty, the details, um, the quote unquote controversial stuff, let's just start with little Ashira. Where did you grow up? How were you raised? And how has your life story led you to where you are today? Hi, Connie. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really am grateful that you reached out and that we're doing this. So I'm grateful to be here to talk to you and to your listeners. So I live in Jerusalem, Israel. I was born and raised in California. My background is 
you know, I studied public administration and public policy and I have a master's in it. The first time I lived in Israel, I actually studied abroad here in 2016. Um, and then I've lived here three times since. I'm finally staying and hopefully soon, God willing, uh, I'll have my citizenship. So I'll be American Israeli. But yeah, in college, I really uh, wanted to always come to Israel because my grandmother, she died at 48 years old. Her name was Rena, and it was her dream to come to Israel. All of her children, she told to come to Israel. No one came, so I was the first in my generation to come to Israel. So that's kind of like how I got here. What sparked me to come the first time in 2016? Why did she want? Why did she want someone to come? Her family all to come to Israel. Why was that so important to her? She was um, because of her background, and she. So she, she was dying very young at 48. She got cancer and she just really believed if she came to the hotel that it will, it would heal her and that she would receive healing in this land and, uh, the Holy land. It was also important to my great grandparents as well. Um, so it was just always stories growing up of, we need to go to Israel and I would hear stories about Israel, but again, none of my family actually went until I was the first one to go. And uh, so you went and you studied abroad and you just loved it so much. She said, I'm, I'm living here. Yeah. So 2016 was my first time in Israel. I landed and I was like, I'm home. Like I'm home. This is the home of the Jewish people. I'm home. Uh, I never want to leave. So I stayed here for four months and then I went back and I started graduate school and I said, listen, like, I want to go back to Israel. Like, can I do my graduate school and still be in Israel? Like, how can we make this work? So an advisor was like, okay, yes, you can go back, um, maybe do some research there, et cetera. So I came back actually on a State Department fellowship called the Boren. So they actually sent me to Israel on a national security fellowship. And then I lived in Jerusalem for a year. Then COVID hit. I was back in the States and I was like, okay, Jerusalem. Well, not specifically Jerusalem, but Israel is where I want to make my home. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't come back because COVID and, you know, all the Balagan. And then I didn't have, and then I didn't get vaccinated personally. So then you couldn't travel. So I had to wait another two and a half years or something to actually return back to Israel. And now I'm back. Now I'm here. I've been here a year and four months now. And I don't plan on returning to the States. To live, right, anyways. Right. Uh, you still have a lot of family here, I take it. So you're going to come back to visit them from time to time. But what is your, what is your? I actually forced them to come here. They live there, or <laughs> they're trying to live there too. So two of my younger sisters, I, uh, I want to convince to move. So we'll see if I'm uh, successful in that. But they come often to visit. Oh, that's awesome. So it's really nice. This year, my mom's been to Israel like three or four times already. Okay, what what I don't know how they feel now that the war broke out, but yeah, yeah. yeah. What is your what is your faith background? Um, my faith background, I follow the Torah, so I'm I follow the Jewish faith. And so, in your when your attempt to get citizenship, are you is that through the like trying to make Aliyah like that process? What 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 avenue are you using? Yes. So I'll be making Aliyah. Um, hopefully soon like in the next two months the aliyah process takes like three months or so so hopefully my aliyah will be completed here soon but yeah i i didn't want to make aliyah as quick because there's like all these tax purposes and being a citizen of two nations etc 
I'll be here. I'll make Aliyah in the next couple. And that's what your whole family is trying to basically the sisters that you're trying to convince to move and stuff. They'd follow suit essentially. Yes, if I could convince them. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No one. I. No one has a strong desire like me, but you know, I'm trying to spark it in them. They definitely (laughs) love it here. They definitely love to visit, but they're definitely very American as well and love their California luxury. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) kind of can't blame them though. I think Israel is pretty great too. So what are you doing now professionally? Where have you, you've had these different fellowships and you have this background. What are you doing now in Israel? So now I'm a political commentator and moderator. I'm also the co-host of a talk show called The Quad. It's a talk show that is essentially kind of like The View, but for Israel and with Jewish women. And so we are right now we're doing a lot of Hasbara. Hasbara means like a lot of explanation and defense and advocacy on behalf of Israel because of the war. But in the future, we hope to do, you know, hot topics and things like that. We're essentially, you know, defending Israel in the media war is what we do on that show. And then before I was on that show, I was a political moderator. What that means is I moderated on political panels. So I would go to like Iceland and South Africa and Switzerland and moderate between parliamentarians and uh, government leaders about various discussions, mostly about women in politics And before that, in the States, I've worked in uh, local government, state government, and on the federal level. So I was in the House of Representatives, and I worked for Ileana Ross Layton. I was a fellow for Senator Wilk in California. And then local government, I've always worked in housing. Okay. And how has this, I mean, the media war, you mentioned the media war. It's always been the case I mean, this war has, this media war has been going on for a while, but obviously things have really ramped up after October 7th, the the terrorist attacks. How have you felt that personally? I mean, have you been doing, I only heard of your show because of the October 7th attack, so I don't really know what it was like before that. Are you still kind of talking about the same things you were talking about, but now Obviously, the focus is the seventh. Or was it more lighthearted before? And now things are getting really serious. How has your professional career changed after this? These attacks. So, Connie, that's such a great question because actually, the show didn't launch until after October seventh. The quad has been in talks for a while, and we were like, "Oh, hey, we're gonna launch maybe you know after all the hugging. Hugging means holidays in Israel because we had all the." festivals so they were thinking about we'll launch around November and then we had the terrorist attack and they're like oh no we have to launch right now so we Mm -hmm. actually don't we didn't have a show previous and so we've we've never gotten to talk about anything light we've just gotten in put our boots on and just been fighting the media war prior to this I wasn't even on social media other than LinkedIn And so I just, I was all about just like my professional life and like having, you know, balance and, you know, I go, I fly, I speak, I come back to Israel, I have my holy life, it's peaceful, I have my Shabbat, and then I go out and I speak a little bit and I come home and have peace in Israel. And now it's like, I'm full blown in this social media war. I mean, I didn't, I started off on like October 8th with 10 followers. Now I'm like up to 8,000. And it's just like talking, 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 talking every day, like just defending ourselves. So that's where we're at. And hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to 
transition into lighter topics, but right now we're we're just like full blown fighting the media war. Yeah, yeah. You guys started off. Woof. Uh, yeah, out it was swinging, our first so. topic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was what what do you get more attacks for, like on your personal accounts? Do people do you get more anti semitism or more like race racism because you're black? What is the angle that people tend to take when they fight with you? So a lot of people don't even understand the concept of black Jews. And I think it's mainly people in the United States because they're only used to engaging with uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters that are from Ashkenazi descent. But they're attacking Israel as if it's like this white colonial power. And so I'll get DMs like, oh, you inward. Can I say that on here? You yeah, inward. You <laughs> oh, okay. you, someone wrote me like, you're a typical nigger. You're just trying to be uh, accepted by the white man. And I just laugh because when you come to Israel, as you have, over 50% of this country is brown. So I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like, no one knows anything about the African Jews that are here. No one knows anything about the Sephardic Jews who are just as brown as me. And so I'm thinking to myself, what are you, like, what are you, what are you guys talking about? Like, all Jews don't have descendants from Europe. You know, that's right. like one portion, but there's a whole portion of them from North Africa, East Africa, and all over the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. this this coloredness that attack that I get is is really interesting. And also this tokenization attack of like, uh, I'm some type of like black token and uh, how much are they paying you? Blink three times if you need help. <laughs> you know, all the things that people say. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> You guys are dumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, so sometimes I, I will see particularly Israeli defense officials come and speak, do interviews on like CNN or other random legacy media outlets in the United States. And it's so clear that a lot of these outlets have an agenda, right? The Whoever it is, general or commander, or Mr. So-and-so will be talking about this is the steps that we're taking and this is where we're at. And in in Gaza, and the person will, you know, say, well, how many casual civilian casualties have there been? And that's like all they want to talk about. They don't mention the Jewish or Israeli casualties. There's clearly this agenda. Um, and I think that's what you're kind of alluding to with the, the media war. Why do these folks even bother to come on? Like, at a certain point, I wonder, why don't Israelis just sort of like lift the middle finger and say, you know what, world, we're going to do what we have to do, cover it however you want. We don't care. We have to protect our people. You know, I wish we really could do that. But unfortunately, as a Jewish people, we have a saying saying, I'm Israel, we are one people. And so our geographics uh, do not confine us. So uh, as you know, all the Jews don't live in Israel. And so if we don't come on and we don't defend positions and we don't say anything, other Jewish people in France, in the United States, in Spain, they're also endangered. So we still have to come on and defend ourselves. If it was just only about defending the state of Israel, I could see us being like, okay, middle finger up. And I wish we would do that sometimes to the international community and not really care about what other people have to say and what we have and what they think, what they think. And, oh, you guys should do ceasefires. You guys should do this. And to your point about the civilian casualties, we are we are relying on the numbers of a Hamas-ran hospital for those numbers. 
So they can mm. essentially say whatever numbers they want. So again, when we hear these numbers, we don't actually know the true numbers of the civilian casualties because we are relying on a terrorist organization to give us those numbers. But yes, I, in terms of the media, we, we still have to fight this war just for the safety of Jews everywhere, I would say. Obviously, all Israelis are not Jewish, um, so we still fight for Israel itself as well. But I think it's important that we fight this media war as much as we can. I mean, Israel has the worst PR in the world. Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> are you talking about from the government standpoint, like what the stuff they're putting out? Or what do you mean exactly? What I mean by that is like, it doesn't matter what we say or what we do. It's just that Israel has been painted as this white colonial superpower in the Middle East. And we're really trying to fight against this idea, you know? And, like, this is not some white colonial superpower. And I think that's also interesting from when I get attacks from my fellow Black Americans because they they feel very connected to the plight of Palestinians because they're brown, right? We've been able to connect and say, this is another brown group that's being oppressed, but we don't talk about the Arab slave trade. They're, Arabs mm-hmm. are a colonial power. <laughs> we right. don't talk about how what Arabs do in African countries to Africans. We don't mm-hmm. talk about the fact that Arabs in these Arab nations believe that Black people are inferior to them and they can only rise to the level of a slave. We mm-hmm. don't talk about these things, but all of a sudden, because I'm brown and you're brown, I'm, I need to fight with you because we're fighting against the white man, which the white man has been characterized as the Jew, which is far mm-hmm. from the truth. Like I said, over 50% of this country is brown. So I, I, I'm just trying to explain to people who've never been to Israel, who don't even know a Palestinian what it's like here on the ground. Just like mm-hmm. the simple, like people don't even understand that there are Arab Israelis. So mm-hmm. when Hamas launches rockets over at us, they're not just killing Jews, Israeli Jews. They're killing Arab Israelis. They're killing Bedouin. They're killing Druze. They're killing Christians. They're killing uh, all of our refugee uh, populations, immigrant populations mm-hmm. that are here. This country is very diverse and it just doesn't include Jewish people. Right. And so what's the feeling kind of on the ground over there about the relationship slash partnership between the United States and Israel, both maybe from like what the U.S. government is doing, but then also what we're seeing on the ground with protests and what's going on at the universities and and that kind of thing? Wow. What we're seeing at the universities is so disheartening to me. So... We see that the U.S., Biden is supporting Israel. He's saying, hey, there doesn't need to be a ceasefire, but can we have, like, I guess we would call them mini ceasefires so we can have humanitarian aid going. And so Israel, like, may stop for an hour or two hours to allow, you know, humanitarian aid. And they send in, we also send in aid as well to the civilians. And then on the ground... So do, do, do Israelis kind of appreciate that? Are they like, okay, Biden's cool, we, we appreciate this? Or do they wish he was doing more? Or do they think his rhetoric's bad? Or are they like, nope, great? From my friend group, it's half and half. Half of the people I know are like, listen, U.S., keep your money. Just leave us alone. Stay out of mm-hmm. what we have to do and let us defend ourselves. Because we don't feel like being lectured, being told what to do, 
and you have that on the other end everyone's like thank you so much for the money please send us more money we need gear we need support send in troops so it's very it's very half and half I personally, I'm still trying to flesh out what I think about it, but I think I'm starting to lean towards like, just keep your money and leave us alone. <laughs> yeah. Like keep your dollars, keep your dollars in America, leave Israel let, alone, let Israel do what it does best and defend itself. Like mm -hmm. we have each other, we can defend ourselves and we don't need to be lectured by the UN or uh, the US about casualties and looked at as the bad guy because no one's talking about our casualties mm -mm. casualties mm -hmm. happen in war i don't want to be insensitive to the palestinian people especially the ones who are not pro hamas the ones who want to live in a, in a in a free society who want to see their children grow up and get married and be able mm -hmm. to feed their families just like me and you so mm -hmm. but Unfortunately, casualties do happen in war. However, I just don't believe there's a moral equivalency between the IDF and Hamas. Right. And when I think at least for, actually, let's get into the, you, I, I kind of cut you off when you were talking about the universities, what's going on at the universities in the States. So on the university campuses, we, we see, especially at Harvard, I believe there was like 34 student organizations that signed a memorandum saying this is what how did they state it this is the fault of the israeli regime all the violence that is unfolding and that will continue to unfold is the fault of the israeli regime so we see students mm -hmm. being very pro palestine and what i want to say to that there's nothing wrong with uh, someone taking the stance that they believe that Palestine should be a state and Palestinians should have their own state. You can have that worldview of a two-state solution. However, right now, to stand in a protest and wave the Palestinian flag, what that means right now is that you want the annihilation of the Jews. When you chant from the river to the sea on your college campus, Palestine will be free, that means you want the annihilation of Jews and Israel. That's what that means. It does not mean that there are people of peace. It does not mean that they want to come to a peaceful solution. It does not mean that they're seeking out how can Israelis and Palestinians live side to side next door to each other and coexist together. That's not what that means. Mm -hmm. And so these people who think they're fighting for peace and liberation they're not fighting for peace and liberation. I don't even think they think they're fighting for peace and liberation. I think they know exactly what they're fighting for, which is the annihilation of the Jew. Yeah, that's the big kind of the debate, right? When folks are talking about this and they're kind of, they have, they're more aligned with you and I, when it comes to Israel, they say, well, are these, particularly students, right? And especially the, the white students who are just, just feel like they're marching along with their fellow travelers. And when I say white, white or black, somebody who's not Palestinian, right? Who doesn't have any right. kind of ethnic or national connection to that region of the world. When they're at these marches, are they ignorant or do they know exactly what they're saying? Now, I've seen kind of man on the street type interviews where they will go up and ask people, particularly non-Palestinian, non-Arab students who are at these rallies in these marches and say, like, from the river to the sea, what river do you mean? And they don't know. Like, right. They don't know it's sea or river. <laughs> Northern River, you guys, and Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah, they, but they're they chanting it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And also, I'd like to point out that the protests are also violent. They're not mm-hmm. peacefully protesting in the streets. They're violent protests. Students are being, other Jewish students are being attacked and hurt on campus. Um, I like to state that I'm completely, you know, about free speech, free press. You can say what you want, et cetera. I'm very right wing in that way. But mm-hmm. you, but they're physically attacking other students. I mean, I forget, was it Columbia University or Pennsylvania where Jewish students had to lock themselves in a library? Was it a mm-hmm. library? That's not okay. Yeah, yeah I I haven't seen, I haven't looked into this story, but I just saw some headlines last night as I was going to bed about, um, I believe an older Jewish gentleman was killed at a, at a rally here in the States. Yeah. Um, I just, in California, mm -hmm. I just was reading about that and the headline said he died. Right. They don't say how. He, he, He was killed. He was murdered because he was raving, waving an Israeli flag. Like, let's just be honest about this. Yeah, yeah. Talk about the media war. Some of the headlines are absolutely egregious. Like I saw one that said Jewish gentleman bumps his head and dies. Like it, like he tripped and fell on a banana peel. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, are you kidding me? And I, yeah. I just don't understand, especially coming from the U.S., where you know we're so woke, we're so left over there, and we fight for every marginalized group and. You know, we have a hashtag for everyone, hashtag Asian hate, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag, I don't know, put up the black square. But then when it comes to the Jewish people, we're like, yeah, the burden of proof is on them. They deserved it. Hamas is Mm -hmm. a, uh, what do they call them? Freedom fighters. It's a resistance group. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, hashtag queers for Palestine, which I laugh at that. I mean, over 93% of Palestinians don't believe in lgbtq rights you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like you cannot go over there as a queer person they would kill you right and that's where it has to be for a lot of these kids i'm gonna call them even though they're adults in college it has to be ignorance because i can't i can't believe well i guess i could believe maybe but that you know these queers want to die right they don't want to (laughs) go why would they march that they just don't understand what they're even marching for no they don't i mean in terms of education, I'm personally at the at the point where I, I really don't think we can sit down and like give people books to read. I personally think we need to have more non-Jews come to Israel and let the land speak for itself. Because when you land in Israel, the myths of Israel being an apartheid state, it's like it's instantly gone. We don't mm-hmm. have a Jewish and Muslim bathrooms when you're in the airport. There's no right. separation between us. We mm-hmm. do not segregate in our neighborhoods. I, I recently heard Candace Owens on a on an interview and she was saying in the old city, why is there a Muslim quarter and a Jewish quarter? Well, because that's just historic. You know what I mean? It's not about a segregation. You know what I mean? In the old right, city, right. the old city and there's Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter. That is just how the quarters were split up in the old city at that time. But in Jew right. in Jerusalem proper, it's like, no, everyone I I can shop with Palestinians if I want, or I can shop at the Jewish stores if I want. Right. We all right. take the and- same bus. Yeah, Candace Owens would, I've never heard her claim that the United States is apartheid because there's Italian neighborhoods and Irish neighborhoods and Chinese neighborhoods. Like, 
obviously, too, when when the first Chinese family comes to whatever city, then they're going to bring more of their family. Like you're trying to bring your family. You bring your family. They come and live in the neighborhood, too. They live in the neighborhood, too, until before you know it, there's a lot of Chinese people in a certain neighborhood. That doesn't mean that white people or black people aren't allowed in that neighborhood. But then a Chinese culture starts to develop there and there's, you know, you have China. Then before you know it, you have Chinatown, right? And But that's not segregation. We have areas where, you know, it's completely Ethiopian. In the southern part of Israel, we have a whole city where it's Black Americans. And Mm -hmm. we say that's where the Black Americans live. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it's a whole lot of them that came in the 70s and settled there. It's not about segregation. It's just... That's where they congregated. Just like we have religious neighborhoods in Jerusalem. We have Hasidic neighborhoods in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that we are practicing apartheid or we're segregated. It just means that those people have a a set value system that they follow, a religious value system that maybe the rest of us don't. So we don't live in their neighborhood, you know? Right. And it's very, it's actually very black and wear skirts, you know, to my ankles. So maybe I don't live there. And, and it's practical too, right? Because if a, if all the Jewish folks are shutting down their businesses for Shabbat and the Muslim and Christian folks are not, well, I don't, it's much yeah. easier for me to do my shopping during Shabbat if I'm a Christian and I'm not, you know, going home for that time to go, right. okay, every, every business in the street is still open because none of them are Jewish versus, oh, now I got to go here and go there and go there because we're spread out all over the place. It's actually very practical right. to have these people congregate in certain areas. And again, when we talk about Muslim quarter, Jewish quarter, we're talking about the old city of Jerusalem. We're not talking about the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem proper, you know, like, mm-hmm. yes, we have East Jerusalem, which is, you know, because we had a certain way how we split up the West Bank, Area A, Area B, Area C, et cetera. But in terms of like the neighborhood I live in, the next neighborhood next to mine is full of Arabs, mm-hmm. like yeah. right next door. You know what I mean? Right. And Jews live there, too. And Arabs, and Arabs live in my neighborhood and Jews live in my mm-hmm. neighborhood. And I have the National Islamic Art Museum in my neighborhood at my corner, yeah. at the corner of my house. You know what I mean? Right. We're not right, right. Right, engaged with each other. Right. Exactly. And that was my experience when I went to Israel. I didn't see any, you know, there's cultural pockets where people congregate with similar backgrounds, like you said, but there was no, it wasn't like I wasn't allowed to go there. <laughs> No, <laughs> which is the case in truly an apartheid or Jim Crow South or whatever. I'm not allowed in. Yes. That's like the distinguishing thing, right? Yeah, um, just it's actually very, very silly. So, you know, you you mentioned um, the different hashtags and Black Lives Matter, and I've heard you talk about this a little bit. How, you know, people like to, and and you made this point actually earlier, just in this recording, that people, Black people, at least now, seem to resonate with the you know, that what they perceive as the Arab struggle, when you've made the point, actually, Black Americans, we have a lot in common with the Jewish struggle. Can you expound upon that? Yes, we do. So the, we know about the Holocaust. We've also, as Black people, Black American people, have experienced our own Holocaust as well. You know, we also have been exiled from our countries originally. They also are exiled from their country originally. We've also have been an oppressed, marginalized group in the United States. Jews also have been an oppressed, marginalized group in the United States. Just as we weren't allowed to do things in Jim Crow South, 
so it was for the Jew as well. And not just in the United States, but also in Europe. When Jews were in the Middle East, why do you think they were exiled out of the Middle East, out of Arab countries? They were mistreated there. They, there was never a place for them to be safe and be Jewish, practice their religion the way they want, practice their culture the way they want, just as it was for us. Just as there were laws, there was laws in Europe from European Christians, I hate to say, because people love to say like, oh, no, the Christian loves the Jew. No, there were laws that told them, if you're not a Christian, you can't come in. You know, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. as there were laws for us, if you are not white, you cannot come in. You're not allowed mm -hmm. to worship here. You're not allowed to pray with us. Same for the Jew. So the fact that we are just like so connected to the plight of Palestinians, I mean, you can. I'm not telling anyone what they can and can't feel, but I don't see how you don't see the parallels between Black and Jews. Yeah, we I both think experienced I'm... 400 years of slavery. Like that's for <laughs> right. both of us. You know? Right. Yeah, and when I've made the comparison or the parallel or whatever, I've experienced black people actually getting extremely offended that I would, that I would even dare to compare. It's almost like we're competing. Like who's the bigger victim here? It's not about the bigger victim, but, but the problem is, is because one, we only talk about the Holocaust with the Jewish struggle, which I'm not saying it shouldn't be talked about, but there's a whole struggle of Jewish history in the Middle East and in Africa as well. Why do you think the Ethiopians had to be rescued with two missions out of Ethiopia? They were being mm -hmm. killed. They, that yeah. nation was killing the Jews. That's why Israel had to go in and rescue them. You know, why, mm -hmm. why were Jews leaving Morocco? Why were Jews leaving Yemen? Why were Jews leaving Turkey? What, you know, why did they have to leave all these places, that, Iran, in Iraq? Because they were being mm -hmm. persecuted there as well. And so the reason why I think Black Americans feel like, hey, don't compare us, is because in the United States, we only see the Jew as an Ashkenazi Jew, which represents white skin. Because mm -hmm. they're not mm -hmm. white people anyways, because they're not of truly European descent, right? Their ancestors are descendants from Israel as well. But because we see them as white, and that's all we see, not even knowing the first, some of the first Jews that ever came to the U.S. were like Syrians and Sephardic Jews. It wasn't actually mm -hmm. the European Jews, but, mm -hmm. you know, I'll shelf that for now. But I think it's because they're like, we don't want to ever connect to, quote unquote, a white person having a struggle. Yeah, yeah. And we, and we kind of feel like, no, what happened to us is the is the worst, and don't ever tell me about a white person struggle. But that's right. only because we deem them as as white, and they're not white. Mm -hmm. But but I think that's why people are so hurt, even if they were white, though. I mean, right, right. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there are white people. I mean, the word slave, like Slavs, like yes. white white people, not there's levels to it, right? But there have certainly been white groups, nations um, that have had extreme struggles similar to the struggles of different brown and black groups. So exactly, it's just kind of absurd in, in my opinion to even like worry about white, uh, comparing. Like the str human struggle is just part of a part of like, humanity. Unfortunately, it's a part of our history and nobody's immune to it. No one's immune to being the victim or the villain. Uh, no, and we, no. we all have a little of both in us.
And it and it, will, I, and it will and it will and it will always exist. I mean, you know, we're tribal by nature. Racism exists everywhere. I mean, I know I'm talking about the Palestinians, but even on the flip side, I have I have friends that are Palestinian that I'm very close to, whole families. I mean, I've been to Beth Hanina, I've been to Husan, I've been to Ramallah, I've been to Nablus, I've been to Bethlehem. And before I was keeping kosher, I've eaten with all these families in all of those places. Mm-hmm. And they have kept me safe in there. And I was able to, you know, within the family structure, I never called Israel Palestine. They view it as Palestine. And I say, oh, yeah, I'm so happy to be in Israel. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I know that's a touchy topic for them. And they feel like, you know, this is Palestine. And I'm like, no, it's Israel. But we were still able to, like, break bread together, be together. However, when I went to those places, you know what they told me? Ashura, hide your Magin David. Magin David is the, what do you guys call the Star of David. Hide it under your shirt. And when we come to these cities, do not speak Hebrew. There's mm-hmm. nowhere in Israel where I would have to tell an Arab, hey, hide your religious garments and don't speak Arabic. Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere. But they knew, these families knew when I was going to go break bread with them, eat with them, dance with them. I've been to weddings in Ramallah, everything. They knew that the only way I would be safe is if I didn't speak Hebrew and that I hid my Star of David. Mm-hmm. And that I present it as just an American, you know, that it's here, doesn't know anything, doesn't have uh, any attachment to being a Jew or anything like that. Then it's like, okay, you know, we can get you yeah. in, you'll be fine. Yeah. That doesn't happen in Israel. You don't ever right. have to hide your religious garments or your language here. Matter of fact, all of our signs have English, Hebrew, and Arabic on them. Mm-hmm. That's a hell of an apartheid. It's weird. That's not the apartheid of your grandma, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is not your grandpa's apartheid, but no, Israel's doing apartheid it's not, new. <laughs> it's not apartheid. It's not Jim Crow. It's not segregation. Listen, Israel has a lot of issues. We really do. People don't even know. Within the Jewish community, we have a lot of issues. We have our own racism that exists within the Jewish people themselves. You know? Mm-hmm. We're, mm-hmm. You, you're Ashkenaz and I'm Sephardic and I'm African Jew and all that, 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 that. We have, trust me, we have a slew of issues that as a people we need to work out, but apartheid is not one of them. Right. And shifting a little bit to you getting the opportunity after these attacks to visit a kibbutz that was hit very hard. Can you actually first just explain what is a kibbutz? That's a new word. This is the first time a lot of Americans are even hearing that word. So what is it? And then you can transition into your experience visiting it. How do I describe a kibbutz? Okay. So originally when they first people first came over from Europe, they created a kibbutz. I mean, the only other word I can use to describe it is like a village in English, but it was essentially a place where it was actually like, some people say it's communism style, socialism style, but everyone built their home together in, on a plot of land and each family had a role to play. So maybe someone taught children, someone cooked food, but it was supposed to be a communal village where everyone worked and helped each other. So how kibbutz are run today are not how they were run then. People probably have outside jobs and, you know, 
someone can make more money than another person. It's not ran how it was before. But essentially, you're living in an area, in a space that you choose to live in very closely to your neighbors. You're very tied to the community. And it's a small area. There are some kibbutz that are bigger, but that's essentially what it is. About how many people today live in one, like the average kibbutz? Wow, that I don't know. We still have many kibbutz around Israel, and some of them can be really big. But I don't know the average number of them. Because we here in Israel, I mean, we have kibbutz, we have a moshav, and we have a yeshuv. To, to us, coming from America, all of that means villages to us. Okay. Like all three of those things, like when we see it, we're like, oh, a, a little village. But in the Hebrew language, those three uh, things are all like different types of neighborhoods. But all of those exist in Israel now. Um, so Kibbutz Be'eri, going down there was really horrific. So it's in Kafar Aza. Um, so we were very close to the Gaza Strip. And Ashira, can anybody like what is it? What's the situation like in terms of security there now? Like, can anybody do you have to get special permissions to go there? I'm assuming. And like, who do you have to connect with in order to get to even go look and see what's going on there now? So the Foreign Ministry of Affairs took us down there. And yes, we have to get special permission. We have to send in our passport numbers. They have to, you know, verify who we are, everything. The, the leading up to the kibbutz is blocked off. So you can't just, anyone can't just go in. So yes, it, it, it has to be an organized trip. Um, but down there are our IDF soldiers. So they're down there. Um, so we went and got invited with other press groups to go down for the purpose of press. So Israel said, listen, we... People are starting to deny this. People are starting to say this didn't happen. Is this even real? Israel's making it up. All the stuff. So they started releasing videos and pictures. And then they said, okay, we're going to let the press come into the kibbutz and see what happened here with their own eyes. So thank God we didn't see any dead bodies. Obviously, all of the bodies have been removed. But we went into homes. And one of the homes, there was still blood on the ground. There was the ashes of where bodies were burnt and you can see that they were first stabbed with knives because the blood there and then burnt um I even had blood on my shoe when I got home I mean it was horrifying we I went into a child's room a little girl I'm assuming because the whole entire room was painted pink and you seen all of her dresses hanging in the closet yeah there was complete blood all over the bed blood all over the floor uh you see where they smashed out windows and shot through windows and what's so sad is when you walk in everything is still there so their tables are still there all of their clothes are hanging up in the house are still there their shoe racks like i mean they, th- this particular family had like a thousand shoes you know and i was like wow you can you can feel how it was a home the art on the wall the pictures on the wall uh we weren't allowed to video any of uh, like the family pictures that were on the wall mm-hmm. to protect mm-hmm. the privacy well not the privacy but just to protect the people who had died there and um but yeah i was just walking through someone's home who had been murdered in their home mm-hmm. and it is such an eerie feeling um 
I, I don't have words to describe it. It was like a horror movie, but real. Like something we would watch literally in a horror movie, especially with the bloods, how it was splatted everywhere. It's something that you would never think or imagine that you would see. There was another home where they found 19 bodies, seven of which were children, were babies. So these people, this was not about from the river to the sea. This was not about a land grab. They came here and killed civilians. They they didn't come and attack our IDF soldiers. You know, they didn't say, okay, we're going to do a military attack. They came and attacked women and children, and not just young children, babies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then not only did they do that, they recorded recorded it and documented it for us. They documented mm-hmm. what they did and released their own videos. And the world still says to us, oh, it's fake. No, 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 no. They wanted us to know what they did. They got themselves high on drugs. They said that they they juiced themselves on drugs and they went out on a killing spree, tying people up. How, how can you burn babies alive? Yeah, I don't know. People can march in the streets and say, well, Israel, it's your fault. What? Mm-hmm. No, Hamas is just a freedom fi- fighter group. What fe- right. freedom f- fighter group no- do you know did that? Did the Black Panthers do that? That was also a freedom fighter group. No. Mm-hmm. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Freedom fighters? You're burning babies? Yeah, I like to ask, right, I like to ask people, okay, you can say that Israel is the bad guy and that's it's a regime and they're occupiers and they're colonial. Like, you can say all that. But what would it take you personally to just go into your neighbor's house and and kill their baby? Like, right. if they stole your car, would you kill their baby? If they killed your dog, would they you kill their baby? And it's one thing, whatever you do with the adult. If they killed your own baby, I still wouldn't go kill their baby. I'd, you know, I'd kill the person who killed my baby, the adult, right? Right. There isn't a situation right. I can think of where I would kill a baby, like, it doesn't matter if the parents of that baby did horrible things. The baby's off limits. I thought we all as humans understood that. I don't think people understand that we are up against pure evil. Like pure evil. Any life that's lost, it, it, it's sad. But pure evil. This is evil for you to go and chop off a head of a baby. For you to burn a baby alive. Is pure evil for them to rape women after they killed them. And one woman they shot in the head, cut open up her belly, she was pregnant, ripped out the fetus. And people are wanting to sit and talk to me about genocide that Israel's committing on Gazan people right now because we're trying to defend ourselves. No, 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 we're not committing a genocide. We're not going in purposely for, they came in purposely to kill our babies, women, children, husbands, wives. We're not going in purposely saying, yeah, let's get all the um, Palestinian babies in Gaza and kill them all. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's what I don't understand how people don't see that difference. I mean, it's clear as day. There's no moral equivalency. It is very sad that young people in Gaza, especially children, 
have to be hurt and have to die as a casualty of war. But make no mistake, the IDF is not going in and those be their targets. Hamas came and we were their targets. The babies were their targets. The mm-hmm. children were mm-hmm. their targets. Right. There's a difference. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's why, like, when I give that example, I say, you just go over to your neighbor's house and you just stab their baby. It's not like you're in an altercation with your neighbor and you're shooting him. And in in the crossfire, the baby waddles out and you shoot the baby on accident. You know, like you're trying to get to their parents. That's completely right. different than I go over with the intent to kill the baby specifically. To me, it's pretty clear. I don't know why it's And then people are like, well, no, not- we need to have, we need to have dialogue about how, how someone should respond to this. We need to have dialogue. I'm like, where in the world would you have a dialogue after someone attacked your family? Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. With your example, right? Like, where would you have right. a dialogue? You would defend yourself. There would be nothing to dialogue. There would be nothing like, oh, well, we need to sit here and we need to think logically and rationally about this. And then you, we need to respond in a proportionate amount. Like, What? Which is not how war works. Like, typically in order to win a war, you kill more of theirs than they kill of yours. Like, it's never proportionate. It's never like, it, you know, in a world war or whatever, like, well, we killed 100,000 people and they killed 100,000 people and we just happened to win. Like, no, we we killed more of them. I'm sorry, that's how war is. You typically win because you kill more <laughs> than they kill yes. of you, right? <laughs> Which is horrible, but... We didn't want this war. I don't think anybody wants war. I don't want war. I want life to go back as normal, where I could walk and run around the streets of Jerusalem and not feel like, oh, I can't put my earphones in now. I need to be more aware. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Nobody Mm -hmm. wants war. But you cannot tell us, especially after they, we haven't even talked about the hostages, kidnapped 230 plus people and then turn around and tell Israel, we'll do a ceasefire. Right. No, we had a ceasefire. We had a ceasefire October 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. Mm-hmm. And October 7th, there mm-hmm. was a ceasefire. Yeah, yeah. We, we There was no war. <laughs> right. So you're... we need our people back. We need our hostages back. And then you can talk to us about a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. You think we're going to leave our hostages there, allow Hamas to regroup, launch at us again, and have a ceasefire because the international community is saying that Israel's the big, big, big bad white man in the in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. When, so the uh, the government was is fighting back against kind of the the conspiracies about things being fake by, like you said, letting the media in. I've been seeing reports about them showing really gruesome videos that aren't necessarily released out to the public, but showing reporters. Um, and journalists, stuff that was recorded by by uh, these Hamas terrorists, right? Like their GoPros or whatever, them doing awful stuff. I've been seeing journalists say, wow, I watched some of it. It's horrible. Like I threw up in my mouth. It was so bad, that kind of thing. But what about the conspiracy? What are your thoughts? And I know you're not necessarily like a military expert or anything, but people are like, why was it so easy? How did they hang? It, Israel has an iron dome. How did folks hang glide in, you know? without getting shot down? How did these things happen? Because that's part of the conspiracy I'm thinking, seeing like almost like Israel wanted this to happen because they wanted to go to war. And so they let the attack happen. So that would give them the excuse to commit a genocide because how could it be so easy 
for these people to just infiltrate the country. Living here in Israel, listen, I have a healthy distrust of governments all over the world. I'll say Preach. that, you know, especially yeah. coming from. But living here in Israel, I cannot imagine that the government would know about this and allow this to happen to their people. What I will say is that Israel has something called a a strong character trait called mercy. And we really believe that we can have peace with our neighbors. You have to understand, the people in Kibbutz Be'er, they specifically set up shop there, lived there, because they wanted peace with Gaza. So people mm-hmm. who live in the South and they live in those areas, those are peace advocate advocate people. They're advocating for the peace of Israel and Palestinians. So this is why they live in those areas. They choose to live in those areas mm-hmm. for, for peace. And so I think that a lot of our leftist politicians really thought, no, it's fine. They're, um, they want peace with us. We're good. Like, there's no big deal. We'll give them more permits to come in and go to work. Like, I think they got very relaxed, you mm-hmm. know? And, you know, we've been having protests here for a year, like, what, almost a year and a half now, almost, of, like, leftist protests protesting our government because it's right wing. But mm-hmm. a lot of them believe that, no. A lot, not, I wouldn't say a lot of Israelis, but there's like half and half Israelis who really believe like, no, the Palestinians really want peace with us. If we give up land, we'll have peace. If we do this, we'll have peace. I think people really have to come to the understanding that they do not want peace. They want Mm -hmm. from the river to the sea, Palestine Mm -hmm. will be free, which means annihilate the Jews. They do not want peace. We've tried peace. Every time we've tried to give them peace, they have declined the peace. They mm-hmm. don't want peace. So I really think that there should be an investigation on how that happened, what happened. And right now, I, I just had the simple analysis of our our military, our politicians must have gotten lazy and really thought, like, you know, everything's good. We're fine. Mm-hmm. No yeah, big deal. We've been giving more permits out. We've been doing this. We've been doing that. Like, you know, they're happy. We're happy. There's peace. There's right. no peace. They don't right. want peace. And they say that, right? It's not like we're deciphering some code that they're putting out. You can watch videos and these people will tell you exactly what they want. When I say these people, I mean Hamas leaders, Hamas terrorists, of course, but also some of the civil, a lot of the civilians will tell you the same thing. And I think that's another part of this narrative is that every civilian is completely innocent and just absolutely wants peace and hates Hamas when I don't believe that that's the case based off of what they tell me, you know, with their own mouths. Yeah, that piece, the civilian piece is really, really difficult for me as well, because we've seen a majority of cousins in the streets rejoicing. We've seen that they were throwing sticks and rocks and hitting the um, the bodies of the women, and they were cheering in the streets. So it's hard to decipher what who who in the civilian population is the majority and who is the minority. You know, I can speak from my personal experience and say, like I told you about previously, 
I have a Palestinian family that I was really close to and even Palestinian friends in uh, the north part of Israel who they do want to live in peace. You know, mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. do, but do they represent the majority? Do they represent the majority when they say, okay, sure, we're inviting you to a wedding in Ramallah, hide your Magin David, you know, or mm-hmm. is that just the mi- minority population? And that's what we can't really measure. And yeah. that's the, that's, that's the part that is, that is hard. Should the question though, should we, should we still care about those civilian lives who don't want peace? You know, I think so because you know, we're not out here just to uh, kill people just because you 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 disagree. But it's I don't know. You know, it's hard because it's more than a disagreement. You want the right. death of me and all of the people here. Right. Right. Yeah. You it's know. Not just, yeah. It's not like a simple like you think we should have more taxes and I think we should have less. It's like you yes. want me dead. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like. You know what I mean? It's like, you want to kill me. You, maybe you personally haven't attacked me, so I won't attack you, but you would like me to be dead. And I'm sorry to say this, this or not sorry to say this, but I have to say this. This is not, um, this is not on both sides. You don't see Jewish people rallying in the streets for the death of Palestinians. The videos that you have seen possibly of ultra, ultra, ultra orthodox religious groups, like I'm talking about ultra orthodox, maybe saying like screaming at Palestinians, but that is such a small minority, small minority of Jewish people. Like I would even say 5%, you know? Yeah. But yeah. in mass, show me where there's a protest in mass of 10,000, 100,000, heck, 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. saying death to the Palestinians. Right. And actually, even if you never saw a video of any Jews, ultra-Orthodox or otherwise, saying bad things about Palestinians, then you would actually, that would be a clue that you were being lied to, that things were being hidden, because we know it's impossible for a group to be completely pure. Like, there's always going to be prejudice, yeah, racist people in every single group. So actually, the fact that there is that 5% to me, is actually evidence that most people want peace because we can see the ones that that get aggravated. We can see the ones that are racist and spewing out hateful things. Um, and we know who those people are and we know who those which people are not like that. So it's actually kind of proof when you think about it that we yes. can see those small examples that the majority of the Jewish population is not out here marching, you know, chanting death to Palestinians. No, they're, you know, they're, they're leading marches that, you know, say, bring our, bring them home, bring our children home, bring our hostages home. You know, they're leading pro-Israel marches as they should, but we don't, we, we do not see anything like we see on the other side. Gas the Jews, annihilate the Jews. We don't see that for Palestinians. No, no. Absolutely not. Or at least I haven't seen it. So shifting a little bit, why is Black and Jewish unity important or special or a specific cause as opposed to just Jewish unity with every different group? Why is Black and Jewish unity a special issue? Or is it a special issue? I, you know, you. I think like with your question, should it even be a special issue? You know, should it just be Jewish unity across the board? I think so. But I think it has become a special um, issue because we have seen uh, particularly black people 
stand against Jewish people for whatever reason. Why that rise has happened, I don't know. And when it happened, I don't know. I know our mutual friend, Dumasani Washington, he has put me up on some like facts and said like the PLO and certain um, Arab leaders personally targeted the black community because they've seen how close black and Jewish unity was prior and mm-hmm. they wanted to sever that connection and they successfully did that. And it also severed the connection between black people and Africa because those leaders were also colonizing in you know Africa and taking over certain African states. And so when that happened, the black people was were quiet about those things when the Arabs had a, a, a concerted effort to connect with the black American population. I will say this, black people are extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. We are, I don't care what anyone has to say, the black American voice is extremely powerful. I would even almost say it's one of the most powerful voices in the world. People care, not just about what black people have to say, but particularly black American people. Mm-hmm. And when you have black Americans on your side, I think it is a sign of strength and power. And so it makes sense that, um, again, I didn't study it for myself. I just remember hearing these talks, but it makes sense that there would be outside actors, bad faith actors that would want to sever the ties between black and Jewish unity, because Mm -hmm. then, you know what I mean? Then there's just like, no power, because we, we are the trendsetters. I mean, I travel so extensively. I see black culture everywhere. Yeah. Like I see it. And you mean, you mean like American black culture? Yes, mm-hmm. when I'm talking about Black Americans, our voices are are very, very powerful. But I think that they're trying to have an effort to bring back the Black and um, Jewish group together again, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's a beautiful thing. But why it got severed in the first place, I, I would be interested in in doing a deeper dive study in that as well. Like, what happened? Right. You know, mm-hmm. because during civil rights... MLK was with the Jews, right. the Jews were with us, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we were one, we understood each other, we, we fought for each other, and now all of a sudden, black Americans are voicing that they hate the Jew. Mm-hmm. I know in my, my um, experiences when I've gone back home and I've gotten my, like, gone to the hair shop, you know, we go to the hair shop, everyone talks in the hair shop, and the lady's like, you live in Israel? And I'm like, yeah, I live in Israel. And she's like, they don't like black people over there. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, there's too many white people over there. And I'm like, have you been there? She's like, no, but that's what I see, you know? And I'm like, no, there's lots of black people there. There's lots of people of color in Israel, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's like, really? And I'm like, yes. But I've had a lot of black people tell me when I come back home, like, are you good? Like, sis, you good? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I heard it's so racist. I heard they hate black people. This and that. So I don't know where the, who planted these narratives, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Maybe it's the propaganda machine from Iran, but I don't know. But I think that um, us two groups coming together would be good for both of our communities. Yeah. And if you go all the way back to slaves, Christian slaves in America that were secretly worshiping 
who did they resonate with? They they resonated with the Jewish struggle that you've you you've talked about. You know, they they resonated because the Jews were slaves, you know, Pharaoh had them under his thumb. Right. And that used to be, you know, slaves used to really grab, even though they were, these are, I'm t- referring to Christian slaves. So they believed in Jesus. And of course they believed in the gospel and all that kind of that stuff, but they actually were very drawn to the old Testament. They were very drawn to the Torah. It was extremely important to them. And there was a connection that developed from the beginning. Really that's the beginnings of you know, black Christianity in America, obviously. And many of these folks weren't, yes. weren't Christian in Africa, right? So then there were, Christ, you know, we can get into Coptic Christians and all that kind of thing. I don't want to say like these were the original black Christians. They weren't. Right. But as far as the way that we see Christianity in America today, it like the black church, this is where it started. And there was a huge tie and a huge emotional and spiritual connection that black people felt to Jews, Hebrews, etc. Yes. And I mean, I would love to see that unity brought back. I know that there are tons of um, black Christian groups and I'd also like to not even just um, segregate it just to black Christian groups because there's also a black American Jewish population as well, you know. But just that Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. bestest black Americans would come to Israel and, you know, feel connected to the Holy Land because of whatever, their religion, maybe they're Jewish, maybe they're Christian, maybe they're Muslim, I don't know. But that we could reunite in the ways that we were in old times, as we would call it, because we're right. young. <laughs> but it wasn't so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it really wasn't that long ago. No. no. In, the, in the history of humanity, it wasn't that long ago. No. Um, okay, before we get into our 10 speed round questions and close it out here, I just want to ask you, where are you most hopeful right now? Oh, wow. I'm so I'm so glad you asked that question. I, today, actually, I have to say, oh, it's going to be a little negative, but I just like woke up with such a heavy, heavy heart and I was just like crying. And oh. like, I don't think people understand. Like here, we're not, what's happening here is very, it's very beautiful and hard at the same time. What is beautiful about it is that I've never seen a country unite the way people in Israel unite. Ever. Not in the United mm-hmm. States, not in any mm-hmm. other country that I've been to. I mean, like, looking after your neighbor here is so intense. Like, everyone is looking after one another, loving on one another, feeding one another, feeding our soldiers, dancing with our soldiers, singing, uplifting, like, trying to keep us uplifted. And I would say that we are uplifted um, you know, spiritual, like we have a lot of spiritual uplifting happening right now. But at the same time, there's like this heaviness because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, our life, our everyday life is not the same. I do speak from a privileged place because I'm in Jerusalem. Yes, rockets are shot here and the Iron Dome intercepts them. They don't really get close to Jerusalem. Nothing has from my understanding, I mean, people can fact check me. I don't think anything's ever fallen in Jerusalem. So what I mean to say is that I'm relatively safe in Jerusalem. Yes, we have stabbings, but stabbings always have occurred. It's just something that you you knew could happen anyways, you know? So, right, right. so my life compared to someone who's living in the South right now looks completely different. 
So when people are like, how does she put on makeup? How does she da da da? And she's in the middle of the war. Well, I'm not smack in the middle. You know, I'm in Jerusalem. I'm in a very tough city. However, life is, life is not the same. We're trying to get back to everyday moving, but the city is not moving the same. People are not out in the same way. People are still, you know, scared to be out, but people are like learning to deal with it. And a lot of Israelis are used to this. So like, they'll come to me and they'll be like, so is this your first war? You know, like it's normal. Like it's became normal. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, it's my first war. And they're like, yeah, like you'll get through it. You know, it's so sad in that way where it's Mm. so normalized. Um, But I think my hope is really coming from our young IDF soldiers like when I look at these kids, 18, 19, 20, and um, their parents are here praying for them, there's nothing they can do. And they're fighting on the front lines for us. I'm just, I'm just amazed. Like, I mean, losing their lives for us, for me to be safe, for me to be able to keep Shabbat, for me to be able to go outside of my house. Um, this is what keeps me going because I'm like, okay, we have soldiers on the front line who are literally fighting for our peace. So Ashera, right now is not the time to be weeping and crying in your room, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like we need to have some type of joy because people are risking their lives for it. Like people are risking their lives for my life. Um, and it's mm-hmm. up close and personal. It's, it's not like in the U.S. where, where, yes, we love our veterans and our military, but um, because everyone has to go to service here, you, everyone knows someone who's gone, you know? Everyone knows right, someone right. who has died. It's not the same of like, okay, Connie, maybe you come from a military family and I don't and I'm just not connected, you know? But here mm-hmm, you're connected mm-hmm. to everyone's story and, and every death that happens because everyone you know has a child there. Um, right. So I'm just keeping my hope like with the soldiers and that it like this war would just end soon. And I'm just really thankful for our IDF soldiers. Really. They're doing a phenomenal job. Um, and I pray that they, they keep their courage up. Me too. That's my prayer as well. So thank you for that, for that good reminder that even actually we're never truly in the darkness. You know, if we have our faith and we have our country and we have communities around us even when it feels super dark you're never there's always a little light and actually there's typically a lot of light <laughs> the number you have dialed. you're listening to the free black thought podcast free.